So it's kind of intimidating to start to be introduced by timpanies. Um, but I am Steve Davis, and I'm an elder here at Genesis, and it's my privilege to speak to you this morning. We are going to continue a series called Miracles. And just a reminder of where we've been, uh, we talked about the miracle of Jesus calming the stormy sea. We talked about Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus their families. Uh, we talked about Jesus casting out an evil spirit. And last week, Paul talked about a poolside miracle and the healing of a man. Today, as you just saw, we're going to talk about another of Jesus' miracles. And this one's kind of unique. I like this miracle because it includes one of his disciples. He actually, Jesus, allows one of his friends to do, to perform a miraculous feat. And I'm going to hit a lot of scripture today. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to walk kind of fast through some things. Paul encouraged us a couple weeks ago to get into the Word, uh, to get a Bible. If you don't have one, we offer them at the Info Hub. Please take them. Um, take one, have it, and get into it. And so um, to encourage you this week, I, I've just... There's a handout at the Info Hub. It's just a list of the scriptures uh, that we're going to hit today. And I encourage you to pick that up too if you'd like to. I'll start, as I, as I normally do, uh, confessing the resources that have really contributed more to this message than anything I, I know. And I've been reading a couple books. I read John Ortberg's If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And I just highly recommend it. The things I'm going to talk about today out of this book are all in like the first chapter. So... Um, it's just an amazing book, and, and I encourage you to, to pick that up. Also, The Pursuit of God. I'm just reading this with a, with a really good friend of mine. A.W. Tozer wrote this book in, I don't know, 1948. And it is, well, it's just great. And when I read it, I, I didn't know that I'd be using it so much in today's message. But I'll, I'll be citing those books as we go. I encourage you to pick them up if, if you'd like. So how do you remember Peter? Peter, the disciple... Do you remember that his name was Simon, and that when Jesus asked, who do people say I am, and all the disciples responded, and then he said, but who do you say that I am? Simon said, I believe you're Jesus. You are the Messiah. You're, you're God's son. And so Jesus said, God must have told you that. I'm going to rename you. Your name is no longer Simon. It's now Peter, Peter meaning rock, and you are the rock that I'll build the church on. Is that what you remember about him? Do you remember that uh, he cut off a soldier's ear in an attempt to keep Jesus from being taken away? Or do you remember that later that night, do you remember that Peter is the guy that denied Jesus, denied knowing him three times? Maybe you remember him as the disciple who walked on water. Maybe you remember him as the disciple who sank. Likely, I think, that you remember Peter for one other thing. And it's the first thing that comes to mind. It probably shouldn't be, but it is for me. And it goes something like this. So a man dies, and he goes to see Peter at the pearly gates. And St. Peter asks him, Sir, have you ever done one selfless act, one truly benevolent act for another person with no expectation of reward? Maybe it was a brave act. Have you ever done anything like that? The man thinks about it for a few moments. He says, Well, there is this, there is this one thing, I, I guess. St. Peter says, Tell me about it. He says, Well, there was a a biker gang accosting a young woman, and I yelled at them all to stop, and they ignored me. Uh, so I stepped into the middle. I sought out the biggest, largest biker I could find, and I smacked his helmet crooked. I pushed his bike down. I ripped his nose ring out, threw it on the ground, and I said, now, if you want to mess with her, you'll have to go through me first. St. Peter replied, that certainly is selfless and brave. When did that happen? And the guy said, a couple minutes ago. 
A brief aside, a, a brief aside is that um, I, I wondered why is it that we, we think of St. Peter at the pearly gates. And here's the deal. Matthew 16, 19, Christ tells Peter that he will receive the keys to the kingdom. And then in Revelation 21, 21, uh, we, are, we are told that heaven will have gates made of pearl. And so, personally, I think that the symbolism Jesus was trying to get across with the whole keys concept was that Peter would succeed Christ as the steward, leader, founder, and foundation of the church here on earth. Christ is the foundation, but that Peter would succeed him in stewarding that. But religious comedians and all, you never know. So, is it possible that Peter's legacy is something more than a punchline in a series of jokes? I think it is. I think his legacy is of a man who took large leaps of faith. So let's talk about leaps of faith today. Um, as I want to describe a leap of faith, I wonder what it might feel like. I wonder what it might look like. And uh, one example, check out the side screens. So you all know the leap of faith we're talking about with Peter today. Let's read through the story together. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 14. We're going to start in verse 22. Follow along on the side screens if you'd like as well. So in Matthew 14, it says this, Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. By the way, the people that he sent home are the 5,000 families that he just got done feeding. Um, so he sent, after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were, disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and in their fear they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. A few observations. Three observations about this particular miracle. One, to walk on the water, Peter got out of the boat. Thanks to John Ortberg for this inspiration. He took a leap of faith. And Ortberg describes water walkers uh, that they have a few shared characteristics. I thought five of them were fairly interesting. So one is that water walkers recognize God's presence. So to do this, you have to be seeking it. But Peter, once confirmed that it was Jesus on the lake, recognizes God's presence. He was looking for it. Uh, water walkers discern between faith and foolishness. Now, Ortberg says this is a story not about risk-taking, but it's a story about obedience. Note that Peter didn't just jump over the edge of the boat. He waited until Christ called him, and then he obeyed. Third, water walkers get out of the boat. There's something more to life than sitting in a boat, than, than being comfortable where we are. Christ didn't die so that we could be boat potatoes. And that's why I think that 
Because we're created in God's image, we get stirrings to act, to do something about it, not just to complain and whine about the problems of the day, but to stand up, get out of the boat, and get to solving them. Note that the longer we sit, the harder it is to get up. Now, some of you will remember that and probably remind me of that later if I go a little too long. But the fact is, the longer we sit, the harder it is to get back up. Water walkers accept fear as the price of growth. The fact is that there's fear everywhere, and the fear will never go away. If we're stepping out of the boat a little more each day, it's going to be a little bit scary. But each time I answer the call, each time you answer the call, when we do that, we'll be emboldened to look for Christ, to seek His will, and to follow Him to some amazing places. Um, It'll become habit. We'll hear Him more clearly. We'll follow more quickly. And on the flip side, each time we resist that voice and stay in the boat, uh, rather than answer the call, the voice gets a little bit more quiet until it's really hard to hear, if you can hear it at all. So, and then finally, water walkers see failure as an opportunity to grow. So the fact is that when you fail, Christ will be there to catch you. We won't fail alone. We've got a life preserver, and he's great. So, get out of the boat. Now, observation number two is to walk on water, Peter looked to Christ. Um, In a leap of faith, clearly it requires some faith. And so in a story all about faith, uh, both these observations, getting out of the boat and looking to Christ, really is all about faith. And that's where uh, I've been inspired by Mr. Tozer and the pursuit of God. He discusses the definition of faith in his book. And he discusses it and says that really faith isn't something to define. It's not something to theologically debate. It's something to do and to have, to practice, to get out there. It's a way of living. And then he defines it. So here's the definition. He says that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. That is, to have faith in Christ is to always look to Him in all that we do, looking toward Christ. That's what faith is. Some scriptural references to bolster the definition. Um, we're going to move. They'll be on the side screen. But uh, starting in Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to Him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. Forward to Psalm 123, the first two verses. I lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. We keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy. Jesus, too, lived by this. Uh, we're reminded in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Matthew 14, 19 says this, that he told the people to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to his disciples who distributed it to the people. And 5,000 men plus their families ate until they were full. And finally, uh, Jesus himself taught. He told his disciples that all he did, he did only through his constant gaze on the Father. John five nineteen says, So Jesus explains, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. In fact, the Father will show Him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those that He raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone He wants. 
And the most succinct verse on this subject, let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So the definition of faith, again, is to have faith in Christ is to look always to Him. And to believe in Christ is to look at Him constantly. So Tozer says that the person who has struggled, his quote is, the person who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his or her soul and look away to the perfect one. Here's the problem. There are things that veil my eyes. There are problems that hinder or block my ability to look upon Christ. Consider the topics we discussed in a hostage series last spring. We talked about things like fear and pride and anger and addiction and envy. So in addition to stuff and circumstances, I mean, just, there are things that take our eyes off of Christ. Let's talk about some of those circumstances. When times are good, when the economy is booming and the paychecks are consistent, business is good, the marriage is going well, the kids are behaving. When times are like that, it's easier to remain faithful to your spouse, to stay principled in your business dealings, to stay clean of addictions, to stay free of fear. But those circumstances, they distract us, right? A bad quarter, the loss of a job, a struggling marriage, rebellious children, money is tight, a friend is sick. Distracting times distract us from the real issue, which is, what does Christ want my role to be in this circumstance? To what is he calling me during these tough times? In addition, there are things that distract us. Stuff is a big distraction for me. When I'm busy chasing the next great toy, I can't chase Christ. When I'm pursuing the acquisition of things, I'm not pursuing him. The goal of Christianity for for the Christ follower, according to Tozer, is to possess nothing. That doesn't mean that we won't have some things. I mean, we'll have... We can have cars and homes and things like that, but we won't possess them. We'll hold them with open hands, knowing that everything belongs to Him anyway. They'll be His. So the question this week is, what are the things that distract you? And what circumstances are you in in that distract you from looking always to Christ? And a little later, we're going to ask God to remove the veil, to blow those things up, to mess with our lives if He has to, to get rid of those things. So let me prepare you. We're going to ask for that. And he's going to answer. Now, note this isn't about an abdication of responsibility. It's not about ignoring issues and problems in your life. If I look to Jesus, uh, those will go away. Or if they don't go away, I can ignore them because I'm supposed to just focus on Jesus. It's a perspective shift. The troubles may remain, but it's from self-centered focus to Christ-centered focus and real relief follows that perspective shift. Using everything that you have for the good of Christ is about removing that veil and replacing it with with lenses that allow us to see more clearly Christ's leading in our life, His will, and it'll help us answer His call. So a third observation. The third observation is that after Peter walked on water and after Jesus walked on water, the disciples believed. When people saw the miracle, they said, truly you are the Son of God. And when we witness the power of Jesus, we're spurred to follow Him. 
was reading an article this week written by Francis Chan, who's a pastor in California. And he wrote an article about church life. And in it, he's, he talks about the Old Testament story uh, of Elijah versus the prophets of, of Baal. And you can find it in 1 Kings 18, but the quick summary is this. It was a showdown. Elijah was the last prophet of God. There were 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah shows up and says, let's have a fire-starting contest. No matches, no lighters, not even two sticks to rub together. Let's get our altars prepared to make a sacrifice. I'll make it to God, and you make it to your small g, God. You go first. So the prophets of Baal go. Uh, they, they prepare their altar. They get everything ready, and they sing, and they dance, and they scream, and they shout, and they, they do their thing. And a side note, I didn't know that people of God trash-talked. Elijah is awesome. He, uh, he's a good trash talker. He tells them, why don't you yell a little louder? Why don't you dance a little faster? Why don't you jump a little higher? Maybe then your gods will hear you. So after he taunts them all day, they don't get a fire. They ask their god who didn't exist, and not surprisingly, no fire came down. Elijah then says, my turn. My altar is prepared. It's missing something. Why don't you soak it in water? So they do. And he says, why don't you soak it in water again? And they soak it again. He says, why don't you soak it in water a third time? They do that again. It's overflowing with water. There's water in a trench all the way around the altar. He quietly prays to God. Boom, fire. Chan says the following. The thing about the change that happened the day Elijah prayed in front of 450 prophets of Baal, he tells them, my God's going to take you down. They're dancing all day long and screaming out. And at the end of the day, Elijah gets on his knees and prays, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I know you're there. And fire comes down. The prophets see this, and what's their response? They say, the Lord, he is God. He is the real God. They didn't walk away that day commenting, that Elijah, he's so funny, and he gave such a great message. And they didn't follow Elijah. They said, the Lord, he is God. He is the real God. And so back to the, uh, the initial question this morning. What is Peter's legacy? How will we remember him? Let's walk through Acts together. This is how I'm going to remember Peter. Acts 1, he rallies the troops. He initiates the choosing of a replacement for Judas to fulfill Scripture. And he gets the disciples moving to preach the good news. And in Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit descends upon them, he preaches And 3,000 people turn to Christ. Acts 3, he heals a crippled beggar. The beggar rejoices, and how does he respond? He goes to the temple to worship God. Acts 4, he's arrested for healing the man. And he uses that opportunity to preach the good news to his accusers. Acts 4.13 is especially interesting. It says this, that the members of the council who had accused Peter were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training. It doesn't take a degree in theology to step out of the boat, to be bold, to seek Christ and follow Him. Ordinary guys, that's who they were. Acts 4.21, the council threatened them further, but then they decided, we can't punish these folks because there'll be a riot. Why? Because it says, for everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign. Again, they didn't praise Peter. They didn't praise John. They praised God. 
the final illustration. How will we remember Peter? Let's, let's turn together to Acts 9, verse 32, and it's going to be on the side screens as well. And here we go. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place. Right? He's getting out of the boat constantly. Take me here, take me there, wherever you call me. And he came down to visit the believers in the town of, I'm going to call that Lydia. There he met a, na- a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he, Aeneas, was healed instantly. The whole population of Lydia and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. Then there was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas, and she was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydia, so they sent men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them, leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand, helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread through the whole town and many believed in the Lord. Peter raised the dead and thousands of people came to Christ because of, because of Jesus. Christ glorified himself through Peter. That is Peter's legacy. And the miracle that Christ worked in Peter's life, that's the miracle that he could work in my life and in your life. And he wants to do that, but we've got to step out of the boat. So here it is. He can use people like you and me, people who have failed in the past in attempts at significance, and he can use us to save people, to forever change the quality of life and the eternal nature of their life. I want to be a vehicle for that. You know, but, but I have to, like Peter, step out of the boat and walk on water for a while with Jesus. And if we can do that together as a church... If a body of believers gets focused about that and does that together, imagine what this community, what this world would be saying. They wouldn't be saying Genesis Church is cool. They'd be saying God is here. The Lord is here and Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what they'll say. Some thoughts. How can you and I be used to illustrate that? I mean, he really could use you and use me to be a miracle. Talk about a miracle if you could use me, right? Well, here at Genesis, we strive to encourage folks to celebrate, to connect, and to contribute. So some challenges. What steps of faith could you take here at Genesis, maybe? Well, first, celebrate. Could you, could you commit to being here a little more consistently, to celebrate together with this body? Because, again, I think that a unified body of believers at a church like this can do some real damage for the kingdom. So let, let's commit to being here a little more often together. Is there, something, uh, is there something we could commit to to connect? Get here a little early. Stay a little bit late. Get to know the people that we're celebrating with together this morning. Get into a connection group. Jason, he talked about it. I mean, the fact is we're going to have a catalog. It's going to have all kinds of different connection group topics. 
there are going to be some interesting things. There's going to be something there for you. Individually, something's going to spur some interest. I encourage you to read the catalog, pick something, get into a group. There's no reason, there, there's no reason that all of us in the room shouldn't be in a connection group. If you're already in a connection group, don't let the catalog be the only invitation. Find some folks. If you find something interesting, other folks might too. Invite them into a group with you. Contribute. Serve on a team. Maybe the host team, Gen Kids, Deep Cleaning Facilities, First Response, Helping Hands. There are lots of things going on here. Not because the teams need you, but because you could get on a team and serve. And through your service, people might say the Lord is here. Christ is Lord. Are you tithing? Have you tested God on that yet? You know, read Malachi 3 again. He says, put me to the test. The windows of heaven want to open for you. Test me on this. You can't outgive God. Try it. What about at home? What leaps of faith could you take at home? Could you love him like he's the spouse you wish he would be? Could you love him anyway? That'd be a leap of faith. At work, could you go ahead and treat everybody as if times are good? When times are tough, people get stressed out and they're scared. They don't know what to do. What about at work if you could treat people like everything was great because that's how you do treat people when there's extra? All right. God is calling you and he's calling me to get out of the boat. So let's work real hard to train our ears to stop ignoring his call. We're not going to ignore it anymore. We're going to be a church of action. And with Jesus as our life preserver, we're going to get out of our collective comfort zones and be about God's business. The final quote out of John Ortberg's book is this. Ortberg says that the worst failure is not to sink in the waves. The worst failure is to never get out of the boat. Let's do that together this week. Um, Pray with me. God, spur us to action. Help us to hear your call. Prepare our hearts for that call. We ask you to break us, to remove the veil that we've placed over our eyes and allow us to see you more clearly, to follow you more quickly and to get out of the boat when you call. God, that, that might require you to make our boats a little uncomfortable. We're ready for that because we earnestly want to be your vehicle. So make it so. Work that miracle in us that you might use us, that through, that through our actions you'll bring glory to your name because you can do that, God. We pray these things in the powerful name 